you are listening to Single Serves. My name is Arno Marturet and I am your host. Single Serves is a podcast dealing with design, architecture, business, and city building in which I interview an expert on a specific subject matter. Together, we dive into that topic and challenge conventional thinking in a thought-provoking conversation. For our inaugural season, we have some great guests lined up and you can expect to hear about such topics like social media for architects, organizational culture, criticism in media, and architects not practicing architecture, among many others. I sincerely hope that you will find these conversations as engaging as I did and learn a thing or two in the process. Don't forget to send us your comments, criticism, and praise. To do so, you can email us at hello at rvltr.studio or leave a comment online. You can also subscribe to the podcast on our website at rvltr.studio and follow us on social media under the handle at revelator underscore T-O. It's R-E-V-E-L-A-T-E-U-R underscore T-O. Today, I have the pleasure to uh, have with me on the podcast, Kelly Doran. Kelly is a principal at Mass Design Group in the UK. He's also a professor at the Bartlett in London. Um, He's a Canadian architect and graduate from the University of Toronto. Thanks, Kelly, for being on the show. Thank you. So let's start uh, with a little bit of your background. Can you tell us um, who you are in three sentences or less? I came from Winnipeg and and studied um, you know, I grew up in the prairies, um, studied architecture in, in Winnipeg and Toronto, practiced in Canada for the better part of, I think, about five years. And then subsequently, I've kind of moved to um, you know, work abroad, spent the last seven years working in Kigali, Rwanda, and um, with Mass Design Group. And, uh, you know, find myself now trying to start a practice in London at this pretty unique time in history. So can you tell us a little more about Mass Design Group and what makes it different? Yeah, I think, you know, so the people who've heard of us, um, you know, probably the first question we typically get is, you're a nonprofit, you know, what does that mean? And um, we started, I think, you know, interestingly enough, we started just over a decade ago now, and we're born out of a, out of a healthcare nonprofit, which I think, you know, given on what's going on right now in the world is, is interesting to think about more so. Um, we were asked to work with partners in health uh, to help conceive and, and design and construct a hospital in rural Rwanda. And, um, you know, through volunteering with this, with this healthcare group, um, whose mission is to provide healthcare to the poorest of the poor, um, I think we developed an approach to design and, and in architecture, engineering, and, and the various disciplines within it that see design um, not as a commodity, uh, but as a, as a right and as you know, something that basically, um, you know, for, for everybody that deserves access to healthcare, we, we believe that everybody also deserves access to, to good design. And, um, you know, being emerging from from a from a from a healthcare nonprofit and applying that to to architecture and to design, I think what um, the model uh, allows you to do a couple of things. That one, it it opens up the forms of revenue that you can access. Um, you know, our, we are at this point, you know, we are about eighty percent fee um, fee based revenue, and the other twenty percent is through fundraising, which allows us to um, I think it allows us to put our talents towards projects that need them instead of quite often I think architects. Put their put their efforts towards projects for free or to people that could afford them but are unwilling to pay for them, and it it kind of brings your services to a far different uh, public. Frankly, um, I think the the other advantage of being a nonprofit is um, you know as a as a nonprofit legally you have to be 
mission oriented. We have a board of governors that makes sure that everything we do falls within our mission statement. And it, it means that everything you do, you have to kind of, it has to be held up to the light and be understood, is this mission aligned? Is this an organization um, that we should be working with? Is this a project that demands, you know, our, um, our service? And I think that, that, that makes you interrogate what it is you're doing, I think, differently. Um, and also forces you to say no. And in, some, in many aspects also gives you the luxury to say no uh, to work potentially. Um, and also to say yes to work that might, you might not otherwise think you could take on. Um, and I think that over the last 10 years has proved out to be, um, you know, at this point, I think we're the largest design nonprofit in the world and uh, has proven out to be, I think it's a successful model and one that we hope others kind of look at and, you know, try to, try to create. So it's very interesting you say that because I've, I've been coming to my own conclusion about the way most architecture firms work is that um, architecture is by and large a, a luxury service for the elites because it's a very expensive service. And I think your business model addresses uh, one possible way to turn that on its head. And you said something very interesting a few minutes ago that allows you to put resources towards projects that need design as opposed to clients that can afford it. Um, can you tell us a little more about that and what that means exactly? Yeah, I think, you know, some of our, some of our best projects um, started from, um, you know, a group or an individual that had, um, that had either like a really, you know, a good idea and also kind of a mission that, that was aligned with ours that um, would not otherwise have at that point the funding to, to, you know, to take an idea and give it a kind of concept design, take, you know, give it, um, you know, kind of do that early sort of visualization type work and that early conceptual work to translate their idea into, um, you know, a, a rendering or a model or something that you could then take and get further funding with, right? This happens all the time. This is that kind of like pre-concept work that, you know, people do with developers all the time for free. Um, but, you know, seldom are you doing that work for organizations that, you know, really need that to attract donors or, you know, grants or the other kind of funding, you know, um, people that this is not their business, you know? And I think like a good case of where this is, this is proven out is with the Equal, the Equal Justice Initiative project in Montgomery, Alabama, we got wind of Brian Stevenson having an idea for a memorial around the history of lynching on the back of uh, the report that they put out, um, you know, basically unearthing this history and this trauma uh, in, in that country's history that has never really been dealt with. And we asked, you know, is there, we'd love to work with you. Is there something we can do? And, and you know, and we basically brought forward funding of our own that was fundraised, uh, you know, our, through our kind of fundraising mechanism and, you know, worked with them for the better part of the year to put together a concept that ultimately then got funded and whole and then translated into this incredible memorial, um, which is now, I think, you know, out there in the world and changing the opinions of, or changing the perspectives of many people about the specific uh, history of the United States. Um, that I think we've done on, across a number of different projects. Uh, we're currently building a, a hospital in Liberia where because of the nonprofit, we raised a pretty significant sum of money to go and work with the World Bank and with the Clinton Health, Health Access Initiative, work with the Ministry of Health there to put together a program and put together um, you know, the basic requirements that the World Bank needed to then fund the beginning of this hospital project. You know, that is the kind of thing, those are the kind of places that we you know, basically put our uh, funding towards to help make projects happen that might not otherwise um, take place. So is it fair to summarize this as um, uh, concept design as a fundraising tool? Yeah, I mean, quite often I think fundraising people are visual, you know, I think we, 
we see something and we're like, oh, wow, okay, I really want to get behind that. And it's, and it's more than words. And I think this is what we can provide as designers is what we do all the time is, you know, give, give an idea form and, and give it a kind of visual that gets people to say, oh, I see. Or in the case of Liberia, take the idea of we need a hospital and give that form in the way of a program document and a, and a budget and a costing and, and make it real in that sense. So I think this is where design thinking has a lot of uh, potential of getting getting upstream, I kind of you know said a few times, like if you're entering at the RFP stage, you're already too late. You need to get you need to get up upstream as possible and get in the conversation before that RFP is even happening. Because that's where you can really shape a project. And it's not just a kind of like architects here, take it from here, find the communities, find the people that are just beginning to think of something and really help shape it at that point because that's when it's most malleable and I think where you have the most potential impact um, as a designer to influence it. That's very interesting because there's been a um, fair bit of conversation um, and I've been part of in some of that in Ontario specifically about um, RFPs as a really bad way to uh, to procure architecture um, for a number of reasons that we don't really need to get into. There's another podcast that I don't, I've done with um, Tone Dreesen, who's the, one of the former presidents of the OEA, who's mm-hmm. expanding a lot on that. So it's interesting you say that because it, it kind of intersects with some of those ideas that we've discussed before. Uh, you said uh, early on in the conversation that you, the way you operate and the, the business model allows you to say no to a lot of projects and work with clients that are aligned from a purpose perspective. So do you do um, only purpose-driven work or do you do more traditional architecture as well? Um, uh, by mandate, we can only do mission-aligned work. Um, and I would argue that all architecture should be purposeful. So, um, yeah, I think all our, all our projects align with what we are, you know, basically, you know, in a, in a way, buildings that are out there to, you know, promote a, a just um, society and uh, that serve the society. MASS stands for a model of architecture serving society. So I think our work is intentionally public and targeted at, you know, 100% of the population. So, um you know, does that limit us from doing housing? No, we're doing, we're working on housing right now in Boston and Cleveland. Um, uh, you know, that is a, a range of, it's affordable housing. It is looking at housing for a wider population base, right? It's mm-hmm. working with community development corporations. It's, there's no typology that's off the books here, but it has to be, I think it needs to pass the litmus test of like, ultimately is this building serving the public, um, you know, writ large. Mm-hmm. So you said that uh, Mass Design Group has been around for about 10 years. Have you been mm-hmm. involved with it since the beginning? No, I, I joined Mass um, just over six years ago now. Um, I met uh, Michael uh, fortuitously for, through some mutual friends. And at the time, my wife and I were planning to move to Africa. And uh, he said, great, we need somebody to help us you know, lead our office in Kigali. I had not ever thought about moving to Rwanda. Two months later, I found myself there and, and could not have found a better situation situation to practice architecture, frankly. So what uh, have you learned so far from building in developing countries? Yeah, so the, the biggest lesson learned was um, unlearning, <laughs> meaning it took, uh, it, it took the better part, I think, about six months to a year for me to really come to terms and begin to think like, wait a minute, um, I don't, don't know anything, or all the things that I thought I know do not really apply necessarily to what is demanded of, of, of architecture in, in a context like Rwanda. And, and to, uh, to explain that is um, it, it taught me everything I never learned uh, in, in school and in five years of practice, which I think I've been reflecting a lot on ever since and, and has completely reframed how I understand 
you know, the practice of architecture. And the way I kind of explain it is there's this, uh, this builder that we work with quite a bit from the beginning uh, called Bruce Nose. And I drew a, a window for the hospital project that I was leading, you know, a rectangle. And he came back to me and said, well, yeah, but what do you want? You know, what kind of window do you want? I'm like, you know, I just, you know, rectangle. He's no, no, no. He's like, what kind of glass do you want? How thick? If, it, if it's this thickness, it comes from Tanzania. If it's thick thickness, it has to come from Kenya. And they have this kind of truck or this kind of truck. And if it's steel frame, it's this size or this size. And I can use this welder or this welder. And then all of that, then you can have a window. And oh, and then the cost. I'm like, oh, wow, wait a minute. Everything that you just explained, I need to understand that to actually draw the window. Because, you know, up until then in North America, you can draw a rectangle and say, you know, refer to manufacturer and you're done. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And it shows up on site and somebody puts it in there. He asked a question that like you actually had to design the window and to design it, you had to understand everything about how that window was being made. And that is a, like a lesson that I constantly had to come back to and, and think and think and think about in every aspect of a building, because in, in a place like that, that, um, you know, supply chains are, are just, they're, they're in the open, you know, things are being made next to you, you know, to have a construction site, you have a, there's a shop that they're making the windows and doors for the project and the furniture on the job site, you know, things are literally being made by hand in and around the project. They're not just coming off a truck from some like manufacturer, you know, some other part of the country or the world. And this taught, you know, this, this is a kind of like form of, of thinking about design that's completely holistic where you actually understand the labor, you understand the impact of your decision all the way down the supply chain. And um, the more that you come to it, come attuned to this, we're also, because Rwanda's landlocked from an economic perspective, the more you could figure out to build within the country because of you know import tax and transportation costs and things of that nature, the more that you can source in the country, the more economical it's going to become. And it really has led to our practice where we now understand pretty much where all the materials come from, you know, where the quarries are, where the brickmakers are, where the specific stone comes from, et cetera, that, and we know who makes them. Um, and we know the crafts and all the kind of people that are involved in the making these things. And I think our architecture has become very regional in that sense and has become very connected, not just to, to the kind of materials of the place, but frankly, to the labor of the place as well and understanding that direct impact. Um, so this is a lesson um, that can only be taught in a place like that where, you know, people, you know, there you go, developing countries um, kind of moniker that, that is subscribed to it, where it's resource limited, relatively speaking, but that resourceful, that resource limited leads to resourcefulness. It leads you to think about all the different ways that you can use something. And, you know, frankly, looking back on how I practiced previously, totally lazy, you know, um, architecture up to that point was a kind of formal exercise, which you could then go to your the wall of catalogs and pick up the manufacturer that you might have had the lunch and learn with from the week before and said, oh, great, I'll use their window, draw a rectangle, done, move on to next decision, never really thinking about that window, you know, who made it, where it's come from, what the impacts of that decision are. And in the thousands of decisions you need to make out of catalog picking in kind of Canadian architecture, um, you know, never once was it kind of, did I think to stop and think about, wait a minute, who is actually making that thing, you know? And uh, that, that proximity in a place like Rwanda is frankly, you know, kind of a luxury where this of the opacity and the distance we have from those decisions in a place like Toronto at this point reveals to you everything that's frankly wrong with architecture. That's great. And I think it's a perfect segue in my next question because I've come across uh, an article you've written for Canadian Architects uh, um, kind of criticizing the complexity that uh, Western architecture 
had engendered over the last few decades. Why do you think have buildings, um, ironically, based on what you just said, become so complex when you can select uh, things from a kit of parts, but the building codes and the way buildings are assembled have become incredibly complex compared to even 40 or 50 years ago? Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, just reflecting in the 20 or so years that I've been you know, kind of in the field, either as a student or as a practitioner. Um, and looking back in history to what did a building look like 20 years ago, 40 years ago, 60 years ago? As you can see, I'm in the attic of my house right now. Very simple envelope, a slate tile on top of some rafters, right? Mm -hmm. And um, why has that changed over time? And I think I can, you know, over the last 20 years, uh, it's, it's safe to say that architecture has been operating under sustainability as um, kind of like, you know, you, your buildings need to be sustainable. And that covers more or less operational efficiency, i.e., you know, tighter, uh, tighter air barriers, higher thermal uh, performance on walls. Um, you know, this, the space has become more mechanic. Uh, all of the things that the sustainability has been describing, like when I was a student, like double skin curtain walls were like the way to do it because the building down the street just had one, right? All of the things like this have led to um, our fascination with trying to drive our utility bills down and increase our, our, our value has led to buildings going from about two or three layers of material to 13 layers over the last 20 to 30 years. And not only have we added layers, but we have become less familiar with what each of those layers actually does. Um, and, and more so what that layer is made out of. And, and again, I think where it's come from um, and ultimately the provenance of that material uh, and, and the impacts that it has on the environment before it gets to your building. So this complexity, I mean, I, I, I will take one material or I'll take two materials to explain like what, what the issue is. And I think a rigid foam insulation is the easiest one to talk to because it's a material that didn't exist in buildings only, you know, a couple decades ago. And it, it is, um, you know, when I graduated, it's the standard thing you put on the outside of any foundation in Canada, two inches of XPS rigid foam, blue or pink, your choice. And, you know, I've stopped to think about, okay, wait a minute, what, what is this, this material? Like it's, it's clear it's a petrochemical. Uh, it's, it's carbon footprint is through the roof. I think we're only beginning to now understand that the, uh, the blowing agents required to make it or that have been used to make it. Of greenhouse greenhouse gas warming potentials that are far off the chart of what people thought. Um, you know, we're wrapping our buildings in layer after layer of this material to you know to to make them higher performing, right? But in doing so, we've polluted the environment <laughs> to make them. We've extracted them from sources like as you know as bad as fracking and what that does. Uh, the places that they're made are are worse off um, from every kind of environmental and health metric you could think about. And then ultimately, by the time they're on your building it's a safe bet to say that any savings that they might have over the life of that building, they probably already expended before they even showed up on the job site. So that whole holistic view is only something that personally I have come to understand very recently. And certainly as a field, I think we're starting to grapple with. On the other end, um, another material, which I think is a pretty classic material in anywhere Toronto or let's say urban Canada is a kind of window wall system on any high rise in, in Toronto. Where that window wall is, you know, it's aluminum and glass, largely. And of all the materials that have high carbon footprints, concrete, 
uh, sorry, cement, steel, and aluminum, those buildings are pri primarily what they're made out of, right? And we're building these at, at a rate like other parts, like that's other than like Asia. No one is building faster than Canada at the specific typology. And these are materials that, aside from having incredibly high carbon footprints, where are they coming from? Who is making them, like ultimately? And I, I think reflecting the, the work I had done, you know, almost a decade ago, working on mine sites around, uh, around the world um, with, uh, at that point, Planning Alliance and, and Replant, seeing the other end of the equation. I've seen the kind of zinc and copper mines, the bauxite mines, so aluminum was being mined. And I saw it at the other end where it's getting installed in a building, but everything in between, you have no idea, right? And I don't think most people really understand even where bauxite comes from, right? How does, how does that aluminum window come into being and whose hand does it pass through? Uh, how many different stages along the way? Is labor along that entire course just barely treated, not exploited? What is the environmental repercussions of this material? And I think, you know, the current situation with COVID uh, bringing people to really be aware of, wow, wait a minute, our health is inextricably linked to the environment. And uh, I think there's a kind of global awakening right now, I, I hope, about the decisions I make, you know, not just what I eat and how I travel, but what I build with. Because as architects, we have a, like architects and engineers have a disproportionate impact on global warming. We're half of the problem. Um, and our decisions are half of the, half of the solution. So I think the quicker that we really come to understand, um, you know, the profound impacts that we can have, the more positive uh, our profession is going to be um, as a as a as a part of the solution of this hole that we dug ourselves into. So the uh, the impact of the profession on the environment has been known for at least two decades. As I can, it goes back as far as I can remember when I first started architecture school almost twenty years ago. So why is the industry so slow to react? Or are there forces at play that we're not aware of that prevent uh, things from changing? <laughs> I, I'm, well, I don't, I don't, I don't, I, I'm not sure we did understand how, how big a part of the equation we were, frankly. Um, I certainly didn't. Certainly was not part, any part of my education a decade ago. And I think even now looking around schools, it's still not being taught um, as wide stream as you might think it, it's kind of mainstream as it should be. Uh, so I don't think this realization is now, I don't think people really understand that the built environment is count, that counts for half of emissions annually. Um, and that buildings are 40% of them. So um, if we all know that, okay, and of that makeup, 30% is operational uh, carbon and the other 10% is embodied. Um, and you understand that embodied is just, once, it's, once you've spent it, it's done, it's in the world and there's no getting it back. Then I think if you understood that, wow, we are everything designing and building is 10% of the problem every year, we would be thinking quite differently. Excuse me. Um, so I think coming to that reality for me has been very recent. And the more I kind of talking to other people about it, I think there's a great awakening right now around this, which is super encouraging to see. Um, how, why, how this is taking so much time, I think because that hasn't been known in the way that it is now. Um, and that frankly, construction is a very slow, mo slow moving industry. Construction takes a long time. It's a kind of brute force, the trades, the unions, the laws, the building codes, everything around it, because of the kind of, you know, thousands of things that go into a building are so much harder to turn around quickly than tech or, well, healthcare. It's gonna, we're going to be interesting to see how healthcare changes here quickly too. But the biggest, most regulated industries are going to be the hardest to move quickly. But um, let's see, let's hope that, that, that we can move it quicker. And I think ultimately the message I would have is at Architects, we're, we like to think that we're at the beginning of the decision-making process. And again, we say, again, as upstream as possible, 
and only do work that that is half of you know half of the embodied carbon you did on the last project or set targets for your office set targets for yourself and if you're not hitting them you should probably you know say no to it or find out how you can you know strive to do better because this is the challenge we all need to take on so one thing i've been thinking a lot in recent times and it's in in keeping with that conversation is buildings used to last centuries when they were simpler you know uh you go to any um city in europe and you always have a, an old town in the center that has medieval buildings that are still used to this day and being adapted and and people um still find them very usable and, and livable uh, and it mm -hmm. seems based on what we discussed that uh now we're getting to a level of complexity that almost dooms buildings buildings to become obsolete every few decades um is there uh, a way out of this is there a way to design buildings that last centuries while still being um, environmentally friendly from an operational perspective and from an embodied carbon perspective yeah absolutely i think um the the building stock that that we have right now everything that's in the world is where we need to start right um as uh, as someone has said the greenest building that ex uh, the greenest building is one that already exists mm -hmm. and i think the challenge we have right now is instead of just trying to build new better lower carbon let's look at all of the buildings that exist that are, are the energy hogs are the things that are driving up our emissions from an operation and focus on them as how do we get these things down because we have to have the 30% which is the bigger question here in many ways and in retrofitting it not add to the embodied carbon equation of it so how do you do uh, a, a deep retrofit of a lot of the buildings and the majority of buildings in say North America were built after World War II. Um, how do we retrofit that building stock and increase the amount of units and housing and all the things that were cities um, while also driving down their current operations? And if you look at, I think, um, in the conference that I was at a couple of months ago in Los Angeles, Carbon Positive, um, you know, the speaker, uh, Ed Mazaria, basically pointed out that in a city like a city of Toronto, 50% of all emissions are in the downtown core and in those tall buildings. The other 50% is the rest of the city, is the carpet, as he put it, all the housing. So, you know, where you are right now, if you can imagine everything from like university down to the waterfront, from, I don't know, from the Don Valley over to Spadina, is 50% of the total operational emissions of all of the city, the entire GTA. Yeah, it's probably 50% um, for 10% of the surface area or something like that. Well, right? This is it. And these are buildings that are most of them are not lived in like right now you think what's going on people working from home how much of that building footprint downtown has anybody in it right uh of the buildings that are there the, the residential ones you know we just just talked about them what is it what does any of that look like in 20 to 30 years you know this is in in the, the structure that these are built out of primarily is reinforced concrete which is you know a, a relatively new material but it's gonna last forever if taken care of and it's really a question of envelope and systems and and the buildings 100 and 200 you know, centuries old that you're referring to in Europe were built before principally two things came along, reinforced concrete and mechanical systems, HVAC, right? So reinforced concrete, uh, clearly Corbusier, and I think it's what's interesting about you know, uh, the kind of early Corbusier project, projects are related to right after the last epidemic and the relationship to healthcare infrastructure and the desire for like hygienic light air spaces, right? Mm -hmm. But they led to a lot of open plan, deep plan. And then once, once mechanical systems came along, that led to the depth of a plan and the lack of a need for passive systems to get your airflow in a building. 
And if I could point to one thing in the last century that's that's driven us to where we are as architects, it is it, it is heating, ventilation, and air conditioning, which has created an architecture that's separated from the environment and every principle that we had designing beforehand about how air should move around a space on its own and how a building needs natural light. So we have a building stock, a lot of it that is deep plan and on a respirator, you know. How do we get those buildings healthy again? I think that's where we could really start and work for the next years. Also, um, it's a lot of work from every aspect of design. And then from that, I think we'll learn a lot of lessons about what architecture of the future needs to look like. So can you give us a glimpse into how those buildings can be retrofitted to be more uh, environmentally yeah. friendly? I'm, you know, I think I'm going to pick one, but work on an envelope that can open, you know, have a window. I mean, that you might be able to have a breeze go through your apartment. Um, that'd be a good start. Uh, or your hospital room. Um, I think the deep plant buildings, we should be cutting holes in them, you know, making, putting courtyards into them. There's, I think this is like where design thinking can open up solutions. And, you know, I think where it's, it's an excavation and a surgery on these buildings, again, to use another health anatomy, and we've got sick buildings. Let's, how do we make them healthy? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think you've covered a lot of the questions that I haven't asked already. So um, I have a couple more questions for you. Based on what we've discussed and, and your kind of your what you imagine the future of the profession to be, um, is there still a place for architecture in the world? And what would that practice look like? Because I personally think that the traditional role of the architect as kind of the hired consultant um, who uh, who works for a fee is uh, dying because the profession wasn't able to adapt to a changing world. So I think your firm is part of the answer or one of the answer, possible answers to that question, but uh, can you speak a little more to that? Well, I mean, I can, speak, I can only speak for myself. Um, would be, I think most people get an architecture, certainly not for the money or because it's lucrative. I think we all get into it because we have a, a desire to improve the world, you know, um, and make society better through the built environment. I mean, that's, that's why I, you know, became an architect, um, for sure. It was an interest in giving form to ideas and improving people's lives. Right. And our training, I think for the most part allows is enables us to, to, to bring, to curate a certain conversation that wouldn't otherwise happen by providing design thinking and a kind of holistic view around around the built environment, you know, certainly also landscape architects, planners, um, engineers of all disciplines. And I think the one thing that the architect is kind of like, you know, um, project leader, top dog, I think we need to, I think we, you know, the first thing is to kind of take a step back and really understand design requires a completely level playing field. And I think the one um, we're working right now on uh, what, what, what a One Health approach to design is. And, uh, you know, this project we're doing in Rwanda right now introduced to the concept of One Health, which again is very prescient now, three years later after the project started, mm-hmm. is basically the concept in health about um, the human, animal, and ecological health are in, inextricably linked. Um, it started out of disease prevention, zoonotic disease prevention, which we're going through right now. Meaning that, you know, if one thing gets sick, they all get sick and the entire you know, world and planetary health is interwoven. And if you're designing for one health, I think um, in, for the, from the healthcare profession, they brought together, you know, veterinarians, uh, infectious disease uh, doctors, um, public health experts, epidemiologists, infectious disease doctors, 
they brought these people around to think about, okay, what are all the things happening in all your fields that relate to each other to answer this? And trying to think about like, what is one health design and what does that mean for architecture, landscape, every engineering discipline, um, ecology, hydrology, um, planning, sociology, like all the kind of things that you, if we really want to think about the future of our cities and planet, you know, um, how do we need to be thinking about these things completely holistically and slowing down so that we really consider our decisions uh, in a way and their complete and the totality of, of their effects and impacts. And, you know, people, I think the answer would be like, well, how am I going to afford to do that? Or how do I have enough time? And I think this is, you know, and to your point, I think, you know, part of the I think problem, problem we typically have is like most professions are just seen as a service. Um, and uh, I think, you know, comparing it to other professions can all use health right now in a system like Canada or, or here at the NHS where you're a public service, you know, it'd be interesting to think more if architecture was truly a public service. And, and if we figure out a way, um, you know, to bring our services to a broader audience and, and work with more people and find a different way to fund what it is we do. Because ultimately, I'm not, I don't necessarily think it's a problem of architecture. I think it's a problem of the marketplace of architecture and the markets in which we work and, and how that's evolved over time. Well, it certainly seems that you guys have hit on a business model that uh, is viable and works at least well for you. Um, has that been emulated by anyone? Um, good question. I think there's there's quite a few out there now that we've that we've seen. I think there's other nonprofits um, uh, starting to pop up, and we've we published. You know, we're working to publish our business model and show people how we do it. I think um, you know, we certainly would like to see more people taking this on um, as a model practice to you know, to open it up. And the, the greatest, you know, the, the big hurdle is, is figuring out like any architect is finding that first project and, and then finding the funding. Um, you know, it takes, it takes gumption to make that happen. And I think, um, but again, work begets work, funding begets funding and establishing momentum. Um, you know, it can work. And I think, again, it isn't, it shouldn't limit what you do. I think uh, we have more doors opening for us than, than ones that are closing and, and, and we're not hemmed into a typology or a region which, which is really interesting to see. I think like our work is now taking us across the globe in a very short period of time because I think people appreciate the, you know, um, I don't know, I think the sincerity of what we do or the fact that we work with a, not a lot of other nonprofits. And I think there's a certain kind of, you know, instant, I don't know what the right word is here, but understanding with like, oh, you are too. Well, that's interesting. And I really think about it to be like that. And if you look at where work is being procured from, the vast majority of work is like in public sector work is done through nonprofits. Like any university is a nonprofit, any city is a nonprofit. Um, so if you just think about who the clients are, it kind of makes sense. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. So speaking of um, different business models, I've been very curious about another very different from yours, but that's also very interesting from, for many reasons. And it's the one embodied by the company Katera. Have you heard of them? Mm -hmm. Yep. So it's a, I guess you could call it a tech company that uh, design manufactures and builds everything in house uh, using a lot of prefab and they seem to be building uh, more than anybody else out there. Um, do you have some thoughts on their business model and potential to, uh, to tackle some of the issues we discussed as well? I can't, I can't speak with too much authority, but um, I think, um, I think the lesson you can learn from someone like Atera is someone from a tech industry seeing how slow moving um, and antiquated aspects of the construction industry are and seeing the opportunity for something that moves far quicker to take advantage of it. So 
I mean, I think there's, I can only see encouragement in this, that we, our industry needs to move fast and change quickly. And uh, some, someone is kind of big and disruptive as that coming in, but only encourage change um, in otherwise, you know, in an otherwise slow to change industry. All right, that's great. Um, the last question I have for you, and that's a conversation I've had uh, with other people, including one of your British colleagues, um, Andrew Wall from uh, Wall Thistleton. Um, why can't buildings be more like cars where uh, instead of being a uh, 100% custom uh, piece of design, you could pick from a catalog and then um, uh, customize it as you see fit and put like the stitching on your leather couch or whatever. Um, and why hasn't that happened so far? Because it seems, again, and it, it kind of riffs on what Katara is doing, it, there's also a huge opportunity to reduce the cost of architecture and possibly its carbon footprint through mass manufacturing as well. Mm. Well, um, <laughs> I would say if buildings were designed to last 10 years and be scrapped, I think that's probably not the model that we want to, to have. So I'm not sure the car is the ideal model here. Mm -hmm. um, a car is designed every year, has a new model that comes out, is fashionable, is designed to be obsolete in 10 to 15 years, if not less, um, is hugely energy intensive, clearly, um, um, has nothing to do, unless you're from, you know, you're not even from Detroit anymore. If you're from, God, I can't even say if you're from Oakville anymore, you know, has probably the percentage chance that your car was made where you're from or made of materials where you're from is extremely low. I would say probably probably actually at this point in bubble. Um, so it has nothing to do with your region. Um, and ultimately the car invention of the last hundred years is probably the biggest reason we have a climate crisis. So I hope architecture never resembles a car. Fair enough. That's a great answer. Well, I want to thank you very much for your time, Kelly. It's been a really interesting conversation and uh, I hope we can have more of those in the future. Great. Thank you very much for now. Hey, Arno here. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and that you'll come back for more. Please share with your friends and colleagues and remember to subscribe on our website at rvltr.studio. Follow us on social media at revelator underscore T-O. It's R-E-V-E-L-A-T-E-U-R underscore T-O. Until next time, ciao.